For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Uh, it's been, a, I think, a difficult night for you with some some late night meetings. So I'm, I'm sure you've got I'm sure you've got your cup. I certainly have mine. Oh, I, I, I have to <laughs> I have to head over to the OR <laughs> after this uh, recording and and help my colleague Dr. Dave Polly, uh, head of spine surgery here, do a do a revision sacroiliac joint fixation. So I definitely oh. need. My, oh, you need a couple of cups. You need a couple of cups. Get them going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's it's great to be on uh, the line here with with two COA presidents, a past president and the current president, individuals who are are in major leadership roles, uh, both in Canada and internationally. And the topic today is uh, innovation. And it came to us uh, basically through email contact. And I just want to uh, remind the audience that you can send us comments or criticisms or throw rocks at us or suggest new topics. Just go to uh, orthojoe at jbjs.org uh, and uh, let us know what you think. Um, so Mo, I'll hand it over to you to introduce our uh, expert consultant today. Sure. So um, welcome, uh, Dr. Ed Harvey. And I suspect uh, many of our viewers are aware of some of the work he's done. Certainly there's going to be um, individuals that have worked with him pretty closely. But uh, Dr. Harvey represents um, you know, a surgeon scientist at the very core. He's a tenured professor at McGill, but what he's also done um, in many ways is taught our community what it really means to be a surgeon innovator. So I'm going to have Ed maybe give us more uh, explanation of what that term means. But first of all, uh, welcome Ed to uh, this morning's Ortho Joe. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with two of my mentors. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, I don't want to date. Listen, I don't want to date myself, but Dr. Harvey was actually my examiner on my Royal College uh, examinations, and I remember being particularly worried because I would answer a question, he'd look at me and say, "That's it," and I'd say, "Okay, I've just failed this question. I just failed this question." <laughs> uh, but luckily, luckily, he passed me, so I'm very, very, very happy with that. I'll never forget that. But the, here's the worst part: he looks younger than me, so I don't get it. Like I'm aging, and he's just looking younger. But anyways. I think it's those 100-kilometer bike rides you guys seem to do. Yeah. But anyways, um, okay, I defer, I digress. But uh, let me go back to, um, I think most of our viewers understand the concept of what a surgeon scientist is. I think, you know, that's been well, well understood. I think we also understand what a surgeon educator is. I think many of our, our listeners, uh, you know, would fit one of those categories, if not, and some of them both. But I think what's less understood, Ed, is the surgeon innovator. And can you explain what's that phenotype? What like what's different about that individual um, compared to the other two? Um, 
Yeah, that's a great question. I'm I'm not sure it's so different uh, for most uh, surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in particular. We spend the whole day in the OR, in the clinic, thinking about how to do things better. The innovation part is just pushing it forward to the end. Uh, we invent every day. Invention's a small part of innovation, I think. Uh, but understanding what it means to take your ideas to fruition is what makes an innovator. People often confuse invention with innovation. Um, like I'll give you an example. A good invention is the airplane. So the airplane was an invention. It wasn't really an innovation until we were able to put 4.2 billion passengers per year on these tubes and fly them around the world and change the way business and uh, travel was done. And that was the innovative part. So it's something that changes society or, your, or a process that's important to you. And seriously, every day we, we figure out something that would be better. Now, is it worth anything? I mean, is cutting a corner in the OR an innovative uh, process that you can bring to uh, commercialization? Maybe not, but there are things definitely you think of and you see every day that you say, oh, I wish they would have made that a little better. I wish that, you know, that plate was blue instead of pink. I'm just using a funny example, but it's, um, that's what we do. Now, the, the person that can take that out and say, okay, how do I change that? That's the person who becomes a surgeon innovator. It's hard. It's not, it's not easy to be a surgeon innovator. Uh, it's easier to be a surgeon inventor. I spent first half of my career inventing things, in, accumulating patents in my lab, and uh, wondering why nothing came of it. You know, there, no one was swooping in to buy things and make my lab rich. That didn't work out. So then I just got a little tired of that and said, okay, I have to learn how to process that out. And part of that is kind of word of mouth and it's a lot easier now. I mean, we started a program at McGill where uh, we had uh, residents taught in three disciplines. So they went and got a, a master's degree in innovation, which included an engineering school, a medical school and a business school. And we had them go to classes in three different universities and still get a degree. And I think that was innovative and in that the people coming out of that, now we're generating startups at, a, at an increasing rate. You know, there's five to 10 startups a year, uh, at least in the first stages coming out of that program. So you can teach it. It is a little different than what we, we currently think of as uh, invention. And but so that's why it's a little hard to do. It's not easy. Let me just uh, let me jump in and just get a bit more clarification. So I think what happens and you're absolutely right. You know, there's like there's probably, I don't know, tens of thousands of ideas every single day in orthopedic surgical clinics and ORs around the world, right? For sure. It probably I'm, I'm underestimating that. But what makes someone decide to actually act, right? Because, you know, everyone says, oh, that's such an obvious thing. Um, you know, I imagined it, but to create something is actually, you know, moving it forward. What, like from your own personal experience, what has been that difference? Like, you know, so, you know, like, is it the idea that people think that I have to invent? In other words, it's not worth even trying. Like, this is such a small thing. No one's going to care. And should we care about every small thing? And, you know, through an approach that says if we make a, a number of small, quote, innovations, we can actually change the world? Or what? what's that? Like, what made you act? Like, was it just you were just born with it? Or can it be taught? Yeah, good question. Definitely, I was not born with it, as Mark can attest to. I'm not the kind of person that goes out and shakes hands and say, can you please support me? I'm more the person that does something, right? So 
in my case, and it's not the same in every case, like I said, now we're turning out people who innovate at a younger and younger age, uh, right out of school. But in my case, it was just frustration at seeing things not come come through the pipeline the way I thought it should. And then finally, I mean, the company we're in commercialization with now, I just said, okay, the, the device that we use for acute compartment syndrome really sucks. You know, it's not accurate. I think it, the, the group out of Harborview identified that years ago, but nobody really acted on it. And so it was just a trip for me to go to the engineering school and ask if there was someone working on a better pressure sensor. And that's all it took. And they were like, if you go down to your engineering school, they've got tons of ideas with nothing clinical to apply to because they have no idea. And then I met a guy down there and said, yeah, I have, I have all this stuff. What you, you can use that? Really? Wow, that's great. Let's, let's get together. And we did. We wrote a little grant. And I'm used to writing grants, and we had it was it was funded for like three hundred thousand dollars, and that's all it took. And uh, you know, we have five spinoffs, like five startups came out of that one grant of three hundred thousand dollars. So I think it was for me, it was frustration, but I think the people that are coming out now are better trained in understanding what commercialization means, what innovation means, and how to uh, kind of uh, oil the channels to get to get that done faster. Yeah, I, Ed, I really like your uh, definitions of invention and innovation. I, I think it it really is uh, it's it's right on. It also strikes me that the process is not that dissimilar from research. I mean, you can go to any conference uh, and and ask the, the attendees what are your ideas for a research project, and people will they'll give you five to ten good ideas. But the the, the people that, that do something, as you said, using your terminology, and actually persist to do something are quite different. So I, I'm struck that persistence, both in innovation as well as in accomplishing meaningful clinical and basic research, is, is a major issue. Uh, uh, and how, how, do you, how do you identify people with that characteristic or uh, encourage people to get that characteristic? Yeah, good question. I think there's an author named Angela Duckworth who's written written a book called Grit, and she's basically made her whole career out of uh, trying to identify people who can do it in many different levels, not just innovation. But it, if you read that book, it sort of gives you a back kind of drop to what you need. But truthfully, almost every orthopedic surgeon has grit, you know, at least well, I can't say, you know, the new generation, everyone says, oh, that new generation is soft. But uh, I think the new generation has better education and makes up for what we had to do, you know, one and two call for five years to get get through our program. Uh, we had to have grit or we didn't get through. So I think everyone's got grit. Everyone's got knowledge. They can do it. It's just, you know, it's a question of whether you should do it. I mean, if you come out as an orthopedic surgeon, you should be concentrated on becoming an orthopedic surgeon. You know, not in becoming an entrepreneur. I think you you uh, have this uh, great uh, gift given to you, the ability to, pra to practice medicine and treat people and make an, a difference in their life. And I think people think, oh, I'm graduated from orthopedic surgeon. I can now do, be an entrepreneur. But you really need to become a knowledge opinion leader. You need to be an expert before you can identify that subject matter that you can take to commercialization or else you spin your wheels a lot. So I think, uh, yeah, the innovation part, better education, better uh, teaching process, but also there is a time factor where you need to have that grit and knowledge that you can bring something to uh, an important thing to market, you know? The question that, that begs, and I think you've just started and alluded to it, Ed, is, you know, when, if, 
when is there a right time or is it ever too late, right? So then, you know, are you ever too young to begin or are you ever too old, to, uh, you know, uh, to, to think it's, oh, my time has passed. And I know it's, it's, it's it maybe it's a question you can't answer, but I'm just, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where I think um, when you look at various, you know, if you look at Silicon Valley, um, there's a group of, definitely there's a group of innovators. Now, the people that say you don't need school usually have billions of dollars. So I, I take a little bit of, you know, I say, okay, well, if I had $2 billion, I think I'd read books for months too. But the reality is they're saying, you don't, you know, the, that the classic school system, you just have to get in and start doing, right? But I think you build a very um, compelling storyline that maybe you need a little bit of background knowledge and experience before you're going to be effective in this world. What's that balance? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, there's all these myths, especially from Silicon Valley, that there's the, the 19 to 24 year olds have startups that are worth billions of dollars. Right. But if you really look at the CEOs or, or the uh, C-suite of those companies, there's someone sitting in there that's 55 years old. So I thought, okay, well, I'm getting to 55. I, I can be that person, right? So, but it, you gotta realize it takes about 15 years to get any idea to market commercialization and make money. So if you're 65 years old, you, you must be really, really determined, like Harlan Sanders was when he started KFC. He was 65 uh, before he when he started that. So that would like so the people are older than you think uh, that generate unicorn startups. It's just that all those uh, kind of glorious stories of twenty-year-olds, you know, you know, are are what you see in the press. So th there is no really bad age. You just got to realize if you're seventy-five, you're not going to see it through. Uh, but otherwise, uh, everyone has good ideas, you know. Ed, um, I want to uh, kind of segue into uh, the value discussion. So uh, you know, as 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 Mo knows, I, I'm always looking at what we've published recently. And, and this is from uh, May 5th uh, in the Journal of Fred, a uh, study that came uh, from Rick Matson's group in Seattle, assessing the value to the patient of new technologies in anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty. And what they did was they, they reviewed 114 manuscripts of so-called advances in total shoulder arthroplasty on the implant side, and then looked at collectively at the patient-oriented outcomes. And basically, even though every one of these sort of added expense to the process, there's no proven value uh, to the patient with all that expense. So how can you, um, uh, I guess, include that value thinking uh, as you, the innovator, um, works towards improving the way things are done? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's a, it's a really brave article by Rick. I think that's a a great thing to come to light, you know, and I think everyone knew that in the background. That's why I said before, uh, I'm going to make a pink plate instead of a blue plate, and I'm going to charge an extra $25 for it because it's much better. I think any product that you want to bring them to a market, the key to winning that commercialization is it has to have a winning um, picture for th the three Ps, and the three Ps are the patient. So the patient's got to have better outcomes or a new outcome. Uh, for the physician, so the physician's got to like that product. We've got to be a, a champion of that product. It's got to make their pro their work process easier or more efficient or more effective. And the payee, which is the one people think forget about, and that's the back end where you go you try to sell something to an HMO, let's say, and uh, you have to convince the chief financial officer why they should buy this product. And uh, the value added kind of committee in your corporation or that analysis is really important. It's really important for society. And I think some of these uh, 
new modifications of implants forget that you have to do those three P's. Yeah, that's great. That's great analysis, uh, Ed. Thanks. Ed, when you think about, um, okay, so, you know, as a scientist, we say, okay, we know what success means, or at least we think we know what success means. It's, you know, often related to grants and publications and your ability to educate. We know have a general idea what success means as an educator, but what's ultimately success as a surgeon innovator? So if someone is thinking about ideas and they say, okay, well, the only way I'm successful is if I launch a multinational company company and you know is that success or are there a number of other reasons why someone would continue to explore and you know take the route of a surgeon innovator yeah a great question i think um your markers of success change as you go into innovation and you're being judged by more than just your peer physicians you're being judged by your your primary funders your friends and family by your venture capitalists who've sunk money into your series a b or c you're, you're being judged by society at large on how it changes processes. I think what people don't, what the unspoken here thing that, that people don't recognize is that you can't do it on your own. I mean, if you can't build a team, you're saying uh, you don't win. So you're, you're, you made a point that, you know, sort of like a certain scientist, both you and Mark, but certain scientists, you know, the traditional uh, like pitfalls were having an idea and getting money which usually meant a grant to get it to proof of principle. There's many more dead, uh, like pits of uh, death in a uh, mm. in a commercialization process, you know. And I think the number one that people don't recognize is building an efficient team, an effective team, and learning how that, that team changes over time. So a team for your innovation that was mostly made up of engineers and idea people then becomes a commercialization team with sellers and uh, value-add analysis people, regulatory. You wouldn't believe what regulatory means to bring your, your idea. I had no idea when I started that, you know, to get a type 2 FDA device to market takes about $25 million. You kind of think, well, I can make a better toothbrush or I can make a better plate and I just need $25 million. And, and, that's, and that's the thing that people don't recognize is that the, you have this changing landscape of people who evaluate you it, throughout the process. It's not like it is for a certain scientist where you just have to worry about your NIH peer review committee, right? So it's, it's a much more dynamic and complex machine than you think. Can, can you say a little bit more about the regulatory uh, issues, uh, Ed, and, and what kind of expertise do, do you need? How, how do you approach that? How do you get that uh, large sum of money to go forward? Okay, good. That's two good questions. Um, so regulatory, um, anything that touches a patient's body and is meant for the medical side of, uh, of uh, use is going to have to go through some kind of regulatory. And there's different regulatory bodies in the world. FDA is the one in the States, CE mark in, in Europe, Health Canada, etc. There is a number of rules and regulations that you have to go through that would make electronic health record uh, look easy. Uh, so, I mean, at Myo one, which is, a, you know, would you think, oh, that's a single device you're bringing out? Uh, how hard can that be? You just apply for FDA. I mean, we have three full-time people, two engineers that do, uh, and two engineers that do regulatory only. It's a $350,000 a year cash burn for our company just to get through regulatory. And it's an ongoing process. It's not, you can undergo an FDA audit at the drop of a hat. They might say, okay, we're going to audit you today. You just have to be ready. So that regulatory expertise, if you don't have it in-house, you have to consult it out, but it's a huge burn. 
And you have to account for that. And you account for that by raising more money, you know? So that's why you see people announcing, oh yeah, we've had a raise or a series A or a series B raise and got $10 million. Well, $10 million gets eaten up pretty quickly in a you know device coming through market. If you're doing a new plate or a heart valve, you need $90 million, right? So that's FDA type three device. So money, your CEO's full-time job, and that's why doctors can't do this alone. Your CEO's full-time job is raising money. And I'm definitely not that person. We have a great CEO. We have a great CTO. We have great people who work for our company. And really, they're, 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 they're financially tuned way more than a doctor is. A doctor is like, oh, I want a nice plate I can put in my, my femur and I want it to work. And these guys and girls are all about, you know, making sure you have that money to make that plate. You can't do that as a doctor. That's, that's just the basic line, you know. I'm sure you've pitched a lot, Ed. I mean, you've pitched a lot of people. Um, what, in your opinion, is, I mean, it's easy to say single most, but I'm sure there's probably a few things. Like, what is it that ultimately um, gets a funder? Let's say it's first round angel investor. And we're saying angel, I'm guessing it's something, you know, under a million dollars is angel. Maybe it's maybe it's a different number, but whatever that number is, not like multiple millions, but getting that first investor in, what are they looking for? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it depends on what type of investor you're dealing with. Uh, you're, there's VCs are especially set up now for angel investing. It used to be not like that. Um, the angel investor is looking at your team, basically. They can't. It's really hard to evaluate your product early on. I think that the friends, it's like a friends and family. So friends and family are behind you. So we raised all our money in friends and family, really. So uh, there's people that knew you and believed in you, right? So that when you come to angel investing, they can't, it's really hard to evaluate. Even if they have an angel investor that's got 50 years experience in the medical legal or medical care field, they're going to have a hard time evaluating whether you can actually pull this off. And the only thing that gives, gives them uh, any kind of uh, sense of positivity is if they evaluate you and say, you have the grit or you have the ability to do this. And they, everyone's got a product that, uh, you know, looks like it's going to make money, you know, and, and you know, whether it's worth, worth the company looks like it's going to be worth a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars, the, they're really less looking at you as a person or as a team and seeing whether you can do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So now maybe um, just as maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take the, the, the prerogative of the last question, if that's okay, Mark, but it's one that I'm sure many listeners or viewers are thinking about is, What's the first thing you got to do? Like, okay, I, I'm compelled. You know, Dr. Harvey has given me a good story. I want to do this. I've been thinking about it. What's the first thing you recommend they do? Okay, so um, you can't do any of this without it. You have the idea. Everyone has the idea. The second valley of death is the team. So you need someone to help with you, help you do your project, and you need to build your team. And I've had my first startup was 10 years ago, and the team was the wrong team and it blew up so hard that I was so badly burnt. I didn't go back for 10 years. You know, like that, that's, if you don't pick the team, right, you're going nowhere. So you need to get one or two other people. The number of co-founders for VCs should be under seven. It should be over one. You know, we had, we had four and went down to three with time. And that's probably the optimal number of founders that they like to deal with. They don't like too many opinions. They want a strong team. So I think the one thing you can do before anything else after your idea is uh, 
find a team. And then the only, the next step, the next value of death is money, right? So I would encourage everyone. And there's such a great resource availability now that that they used to not have was that you get non-dilutive funding. So you start with grants, then you start with municipal, state, or federal grants for innovation. There's tons of them now. Every state is looking at this and throwing money at it. And it's out there. You don't have to go past friends and family for a couple of years, usually, if you can get involved with these uh, processes at 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 the government level. Wonderful. Well, on that note, I would like to uh, thank you again, Dr. Harvey, for spending some time with us. And always great to see you, uh, Dr. Swinkowski. And uh, I think we are at a point where we might be giving our final little cheers. And thanks again for yeah. your uh, support. Well, I, I hope you don't have another evening like you had last night. Uh, oh, um, the one the one thing about being chair of surgery, um, the gift is that you will be Basically, basically, your day is derailed on a daily basis. That's the gift. That's the gift. So I just, you know, I expect it. It's, it's been fun. <laughs> well, enjoy. Thanks right. very much, Ed. No problem. Thanks a lot for, for the invitation. Yeah. Right, take care, Bye. Bye-bye. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.